On today's episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, we ask the question, who do you think you are? Where do you get off charging all this money for coaching? Did you go to school for that? <laughs> Basically answer that question, and how do you get yourself in the right state of mind to be able to carry on and do this the best you possibly can? You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart, where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level, while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. Hi there. Glad to have you here. Today I'm going to be talking about something that is near and dear to my heart, and that is the idea of what do you do if you're not completely 100% self-confident? I I read about this once, uh, that's why I like it so much. It's not me, of course. I'm 100%, 100% self-confident all the time, in every situation, and, and that's why I'm so very, very successful. Um... You can hear the congruence in my voice, I'm sure, because I'm feeling it right now, even as I start speaking about this. I'm not, actually, as you can probably tell. So what, how, do we, how do we do this? How do we go through life? How do we go through life as a coach, as an entrepreneur, if you will? How do we go through and make ourselves be in situations where we're coaching people? We're getting good money. Hopefully, you're getting good money for doing coaching. And and who are we to be there doing that? Who are, who are we? That imposter syndrome, you know, is a thing that I think everybody has at one point or another. Interestingly, I just want to tell you that it's it's not just you and it's not just me. Um, it is everybody. Everybody who has, let's say, quality has doubts. I think you've probably heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect. I think that is the correct term. If you're not familiar with that term, uh, you're familiar with the effect, and maybe not the name for it, the Dunning-Kruger or a couple of researchers who gave it a name. But you've probably seen the sort of thing where it's like on the auditions for America's Got Talent or that sort of program, where you see people who are auditioning thinking they're just killing it. They're just knocking it out of the park. They think they are great at whatever it is that they're doing, dancing or singing. And the auditions are so funny to watch because they are just really not good. And yet, um, you know, they do it with such, you know, confidence. And afterwards they go, yeah, yeah, that was great. I'm totally going to be the next star. And that that effect of, of people thinking they're better than they are is usually an indication that they are really not good at all. There was a study done once that that showed this to be uh, very, very true. They took a bunch of people and gave them a, a, a class in something, uh, something obscure, like nobody knew anything about, so they're all kind of on the same page. You know, something like, you know, world geography. You know, where's Sweden? Oh, isn't it somewhere in Canada? You know, it's... it's um, the kind of thing nobody knew anything about. And then they gave them a test on it. They gave them a test on this thing. And then they asked the people, 
how'd you do on the test? And this, by the way, was the real point to the study that they were doing, not how well they remembered the geography. But the people that did the least well on the test, most of them came out and said, no, I think that was easy. I, I'm sure I aced it. I probably had the best score. I, had, I, I was the best score probably. Um, and they were not good at all. And then the people who were actually did the best on this on the test, most of them came out and were like, well, I don't know. It was it was pretty hard. I mean, I probably did okay. I think I knew most of the answers, but there are some I just didn't didn't get. And those are the people that did the best. So if you are ever in that category, finding yourself going like, oh, wow, I'm not sure I'm really cut out to be the coach that uh, charges that much money, or I'm not really, I don't know if I can really put myself up there. It means that you're good. It means that you are good. You are striving to be better, and that's what makes a person good. If you think, I'm done, I'm done learning, I've learned everything I need to know, I'm just, you know, I've got it all, then yeah, you're not. You're not. And interestingly, like I said, it's true for everybody. One of my, I'd like to call him my mentor. I never met the man, Milton Erickson. You've probably heard of Milton Erickson, um, the great hypnotherapist. I do a semblance of what he did. I call it, as many people do, Ericksonian hypnosis, or um, I sometimes refer to it now as Neo-Ericksonian hypnosis because of the nod to the fact that I learned a lot of things from Dave Dobson and from other people's second-hand um, teachers, not second-hand teachers, but like second level, like not Erickson, but Erickson students, people like Stephen Gilligan, etc. So I've learned a lot from other people. So Neo-Ericksonian seems to be more accurate. But nevertheless, Milton Erickson himself was prone to this from time to time. Now, this is a giant, right? This is one of the giants of psychotherapy in the 20th century, perhaps one of the best, one of the most important psychotherapists of the 20th century, and, you know, obviously one of the most important hypnotists of the time. But he was prone to this from time to time. Imagine that, him, Milton Erickson. There was this, a famous story about where the psychiatrist, this rather well-known psychiatrist, was coming to Milton Erickson for therapy. And, and and Milton was nervous about this man coming to see him for therapy. You know, the famous psychiatrist, let's just call him Dr. Schwartz. I don't know if that's correct or not. But um, about 10 minutes before the session was supposed to begin, Erickson was so nervous, he just said, well, I'm just going to just going to close my eyes for a few minutes. My, he felt suddenly very tired and he was so nervous that he just thought he'd close his eyes for a couple of minutes before the session. And then he woke up like an hour and 20 minutes later, like 10 minutes after the hour-long session was supposed to be over, right? So if the session was scheduled for one, about 10 to one, he closed his eyes. He you know, woke up at 10 after two, right? And he was like, oh my God, I missed Dr. Schwartz's appointment. And he, he goes out into the waiting room and, and, and talks to his secretary and said, what happened with Dr. Schwartz? He said, oh, he just left. He said, he just left? He said, yeah, he made an appointment for next week. Oh, okay. Great, carry on. And so Erickson uh, <laughs> went back into his office and noticed that on his desk there were three handwritten notes, like, you know, what a psychiatrist or whatever would make notes, session notes face down on his desk. These three handwritten pages of his handwriting were face down on his desk. He took that to mean from his unconscious mind that he wasn't supposed to read these notes. 
if his, he figured if his unconscious mind wanted him to read them, they'd have been face up. So he made a file for these notes, and he put them into the filing cabinet without having read them. And then the same thing happened the next week. About 10 minutes before the session, he kind of went into the self-induced deep trance, woke up an hour and a half later, you know, whatever, and um, same thing happened. He never met the man until one day, like three, four or five, I don't know how many sessions into this process he was, halfway through the session, according to the the reports that I've read, um, this Dr. Schwartzman noticed that El Milton was in a, in a trance, and he said, God damn it, Erickson, you're in a trance. And and Erickson woke up out of the trance. He said, oh, I'm so sorry, Dr. Schwartz. Um, carry on with what you were saying. And they, he said he proceeded to do the sessions from that point forward consciously. And then the notes would be written, of course, and filed face up. Um, years later, Ernest Rossi, who, who helped compile a lot of Erickson's papers for publication, um, asked Erickson about this and asked him if he could read those notes that he had written, you know, in trance. And at first Erickson was, was saying, no, you can't see him. Nobody can see him. Finally, he relented and allowed Ernest Rossi to see them on the condition that he would never tell Milton what was in there. Ernest um, later reported that they were pretty very basic notes like anybody else would take consciously. And probably Erickson did take consciously after that. So that that phenomenon of nervousness and uncertainty is something that you need to just get comfortable with. One of my teachers, Dave Dobson, used to say the secret to success is to get comfortable being uncomfortable. So get comfortable being uncomfortable. Because why? Growth requires stretching and changing, doesn't it? You need to be uncomfortable. You're uncomfortable when you're stretching. You're uncomfortable when you're expanding your boundaries, when you're trying new things. This is, by definition, it's uncomfortable. It's not usual. It's not normal. So, great. If you get comfortable being uncomfortable, that means you're getting comfortable growing. You're getting comfortable stretching, becoming stronger, better, different. Right? So, Get comfortable being uncomfortable it means you sit with it, you, you accept it, you invite it in. Um, in our, one of our first interviews in this, this series of podcasts, uh, Stephen Gilligan, as one of my other teachers, um, has this coaching principle. You probably saw the acronym for that. Um, but the, the coach state includes acceptance, you know, to the hospitality of bringing in that uncomfortable place both in yourself and in the client. You know, being in a coach state means you, you help the client to say, oh, let's just accept and be hospitable to the negative, quote-unquote, negative part, or the scary part, whatever. We would say, yeah, come on in, welcome. We want to do that for ourselves, too, to recognize that we are always growing, hopefully, right? We want to grow and change and learn, be lifelong learners, don't you? So you want to be in this place where you're always growing, always stretching, or at least a lot. Maybe you can have some moments of comfort. That's okay, too. <laughs> you can feel good about yourself. That's okay, too. And let yourself just accept that you may not know every answer. One of Erickson's greatest 
ways of responding, most favorite ways, let's put it that way, of responding to people is he'd say, I don't know. People would say, well, what do you think about this, Dr. Erickson? Should we go this way? And you're like, I don't know. That is an excellent question. I wonder what you might think of that, that, if you were to close your eyes. And they they'd trust their unconscious mind sort of thing. But the I don't know is a great way to test this ability to be comfortable being uncomfortable, to accept and be hospitable to this place where we're saying, yeah, I don't know every answer in the world. Let's find out. Let's explore that. What might it be? Where can we go? What, what are some options here? Right? Now, it's also true that with this um, Dunning-Kruger effect, as we said before, that having that sense of self-confidence can take you a long way, can't it? And I, I used to play in some rock and roll bands where I thought, my God, um, some of these lead singers that I played with, they're no better than I was as far as ability to sing. And I don't take... I don't take great pride in my singing voice. That's why I play the piano. <laughs> People, when I used to do, you know, just solo piano things and I'd sometimes sing, I, I, I'd joke that uh, I would get a lot of requests when I sang at the piano, but uh, I, I'd sing anyway. Uh, I'd ignore those requests and sing anyway. Um, but there were times I'd be playing with people and the singers were really no better than I was, but they often, almost always, had tremendous self-confidence. Just, yeah, they'd, they'd get out there and they'd sing that thing, you know, they'd put it out there. And that's great. It's good to have that. And it took them a long way. There are some very famous people, <laughs> very famous people who have, you know, ridden that self-confidence big time. I, I was noticing, um, it came to my attention recently, a, a term Maybe you've heard. It's been around, I guess, for a couple of years. I just noticed it recently on one of my, you know, when you open up your computer these days and you go to Google, they give all these, you might be interested in this. You might be interested in that. Um, I saw this article about, I think it was called, if I remember correctly, uh, something to do with, uh, 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 um, what was the exact expression? Uh, narcissism mixed with... Humbleness, like humble narcissism, I think it was called, humble narcissism, which I I think is kind of a flawed concept, but um, I don't, I'm not advocating for that. But I think what is being suggested by the terminology is that it's good to have a positive self-image and acceptance of who you are. It's good to have confidence. It's good to have a, a good, solid dose of confidence and to be able to turn that on when you need it, you know, be able to step into that feeling of confidence when you need to. Like me stepping up here to talk to you on this podcast. I, I have to feel like I have something to say in order to be saying it into this microphone, you know, in my house of an upstate York where there's nobody around. You know, I have to feel like somebody's going to care about listening to this, and this is important enough to do it. So I, I, I have to, by, necess, by, by definition, by, um, I have to be able to step into this place of feeling like, yes, I'm confident this is worthwhile to say, and that people want to listen to this. I have to do that. Now, 
boy, oh gosh, almighty, there's a whole, whole lot of people doing podcasts, right? And there's a whole lot of people who are really smarter than I am, and they've got PhDs, and they got that sort of stuff. People like, you know, Tony Robbins, he's so amazingly good at speaking, you know, distant candle. Not, I can't hold a candle to that. It's nothing at all similar. And you know what? I do have things to say, and I can find those situations where I think, well, well, in this case, I know what I'm talking about. In this case, I can be confident about what I have to say in this case, right? So I can find those areas that I can be confident about. That's what we need to do. We need to find those areas about which we can be confident, grab onto that, hold on tight, and own it. So when you start your podcast, when you start doing your marketing, when you put yourself out there as a coach that people want to hire and pay good money for, you want to be able to step into that place where you go like, yeah, that's me. That's who I am. That's what I have to offer. It's good and I'm ready. Now, of course, if you've listened to the past few podcasts about questions, this is a great place to apply that, isn't it? You know, what am I confident about? How does that make me feel, right? You can you can step into that same sort of question answering, asking and answering uh, template, can't you? What, am I, what do I feel confident about? When have I felt confident before? When can I feel it now? What does it feel like? Why do I feel good about that? How does it make me feel? You go in through that process. What's good about this? What's great about it? Where can I feel confident? You can ask those kinds of questions and get hold of it. Another thing, of course, you can do is you can anchor the feeling, right? You can anchor the feeling. Now, I don't know how many of you people who are listening to this right now are familiar with the, the field of neuro linguistic programming or NLP? If you've read my bio at all, you know that I am an NLP trainer or master trainer. Um, I've been at it for a long time, but NLP is certainly not the only place in the world that has used this ability to anchor in a good feeling. Um, in fact, we didn't make it up at all. We stole it. Stole it from the field of behavioral science. It's called a stimulus response. Uh, a conditioned response. So as an example, in the arena of public speaking, you are probably aware that many, many people have a challenge with public speaking. Um, statistics show that people are uh, more afraid of public speaking than they are of dying. So that's a kind of amusing, amusing thing. You know, people would apparently rather be in the casket than the one delivering the eulogy. And it comes down to that. But um, what do you do about that? If you want to, you know, put your stuff out there, if you want to do a podcast, if you want to grow your business, if you want to do information marketing where you, you know, put yourself out there on videos or in talks or panels and things like that, how do you overcome this situation? Right? You need to, don't you? You need to be able to do those marketing things necessary. You need to be able to deliver on those talks and those interviews and those um, panel discussions, etc. So one of the ways you can do that is through this process of anchoring. You ask yourself the question, when have you felt confidence before? Now, some people will say never <laughs> answer that question because they're thinking in terms of public speaking. Maybe they've always been afraid of public speaking, right? Maybe they've ever since they can remember. 
fourth grade or whatever it is, as long as they can remember, they've always had a fear of public speaking. So they might answer the question, I've never felt confidence about public speaking, at least. But the, the question is not where have you felt confidence about public speaking. The question is where have you felt confidence, right? So you can f take that feeling of confidence, whether it's in, you know, bowling or cooking or writing or driving, anything you feel really confident about, you can take that feeling and transfer it to the arena of public speaking. And you do that through this process of anchoring. So as an example, if you felt really confident about your bowling skills, right? Maybe you consistently bowl 300 games, you know, so that's just what you do. You're surprised if you don't, right? Because you're that good. You're that good. You really are talented at it practiced at it, high abilities, and therefore great confidence in bowling. So if, you, if anybody said, hey, I challenge you to a game, it's like, all right, sure, I can do that. And you step right up and have this you know, feeling of super confidence. That feeling right there is what you want to anchor. So because it's a stimulus response, what you do is you feel the feeling really strong. You get the feeling of confidence really strong. I'm a master bowler. Feel it super strong. And you, you change your body's posture, right? You do the like power postures and feel super strong. You tell yourself with determination in your voice, certainty in your voice, yes, I am super confident. And then you, you create a, a stimulus for that. You, you, you squeeze your fist together. You, you, you tug on your earlobe. You do something that's a stimulus. Maybe it's a snapping noise with your fingers. Whatever it is, you make some sort of stimulus. When I talk about stimulus, let me back aside for a second. You remember Pavlov's dogs? Remember? <laughs> you were... You were there, weren't you? Uh, a member from high school, I think, uh, psychology class. Um, we, we learned about Pavlov's dogs. If, you know, if you're not familiar with Pavlov, um, Ivan Pavlov was a, a Russian, I believe, uh, researcher who did these famous experiments where he, he took these dogs and he uh, attached this apparatus to measure their saliva. And then he showed them dog food because they were dogs. And, and while they were salivating for the food... He measured the saliva and he rang a bell. So while they're seeing the food and, and, you know, salivating for the food, he rang a bell. And the next day at lunchtime, when he showed them dog food, he'd ring a bell when they were being shown the food. Show them food, ring a bell. Show the food, ring a bell. Show the food, ring a bell. This happened over time. And every time he showed them the food and they salivated, he rang a bell. Pretty soon, the dog's neurology had connected that bell ringing with the food with the salivating. So pretty soon, he didn't have to show them food at all. He'd just ring the bell, and boom, they'd start salivating in the same way as if the food was there. He created this linkage. He created this linkage. So that's what's known as a stimulus response. The stimulus of the bell ringing creates the response. And he linked it together through the repetition. So we can do the exact same thing. So the stimulus might be a bell ringing. The stimulus could be squeezing your fist. The stimulus could be squeezing your earlobe. You know, it could be anything, couldn't it? So what you want to do is you want to create that kind of thing that you could do easily for yourself. That's why squeezing your fist is so easy, right? You've got it right there. But you could also take your one hand and reach over and squeeze the wrist of your other hand. You can do anything like that that for you means this is my confidence anchor. So... 
getting back to my example. So you get yourself into a place where you're feeling super confident about your bowling abilities. You get into the state where it's like, yes, I know I could do this. And you feel totally confident on a scale of zero to 10. It's a 10, right? On a scale of zero to 10, it's just at a peak level. It's getting off in the red. And then you squeeze your fist or you do whatever that, you know, stimulus is going to be for you. And that becomes linked in you. And then you let it go and relax. Then you do it again. You get it back up and you say, yeah, 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 yeah. Squeeze your fist. Yes, yes, yes. And let it go. And just like Pavlov, you do a number of repetitions until squeezing your fist like that makes that feeling happen in your body. That you can become linked together. Right? So you've taken that feeling of confidence in bowling and you've associated it to squeezing your fist or whatever other stimulus you've decided upon. Then... When you want to take that feeling and apply it to something, some other arena where you have not to date felt that confidence, then you can step up and practice. I'm going to do a public speaking now and squeeze your fist like, yes, you can feel that same feeling of confidence in this new arena. So you've anchored the feeling of confidence. You've brought the anchor with you to this new arena. Now you feel confidence here. Right, So you can do things like that. You can create this power in yourself. You do have all the resources you need inside you to do anything you want in life. Anything. You just need to find ways to tap into it. And you do that through, well, as I've described, asking good questions to yourself, finding other arenas where you've got that resource and then bringing it into this new arena. You've got ways to do that. And to accept that where you are is a work in progress. We are always getting better. We are always learning. And to accept this, you know, uncomfortableness and this comfort with being uncomfortable. You know, because I'm growing. I don't know. I want to learn. That's fascinating. Let's find out. Let's, let's, let's be hospitable. Let's invite that in and sit with that and say, yes. I am worthy and good enough and getting better. And I have this, this sincere desire to do well with, by people. And I want to find out how to make that better. I want to create even better next week. And the week after that, I'll be better. That's better still. I'm learning. I'm growing. Always getting better. Which means that the person that you're working with is going to get the best you possible. And that's what they're paying for. And you're worth it. You're worth it. So that, that that term of humble narcissism, I don't think is accurate. I don't think it's accurate at all. I don't think narcissism is something to aspire to. But humble confidence, yeah, let's go with that. You know, let's have tons of good, clean, accurate self-confidence, right? Because I think that's a beautiful thing. Self-love, self-confidence. Self-love can be defined as being content with the work in progress that you are. Not seeking the approval of others. Being yourself. Comparing yourself only to who you were in the past and not to others. You're, you're growing. Not thinking that you are any better than anybody else, but you're, you know, equal to. Good as anybody else. I think that's a very good thing. Now, I will say one thing about competition. It's it's okay. It's okay to have competition. I remember years ago when I was first learning NLP from Tony Robbins, 
and this is a few years ago. Uh, just a few, just a few, just a, a, a number. Um, but he was saying that the word competition comes from, a, I think it was either Latin, I think it was Latin, I don't think it was Greek, a Latin term that meant basically to conspire together. The word escapes me of what the actual etymology of the word was, but it's something like conspiratore. Um, it means to conspire together. And he used the example, he said, if you and I are playing basketball together, I'm going to try my best to beat you, and you're going to try your best to beat me. And by doing so, we will hold our, each other to higher standards, and we'll bring, it, bring out the best in each other, and that way we'll both be growing most the best we can. We'll become the best that we can because of this working together, conspiring together, this competition. That's healthy, good competition. I know when I've run marathon races in the past, I've often sort of thought um, what's really important, of course, is that I'm doing better than I did last time. So comparing myself to me. Right, last time I I did it in three hours and fifty minutes. If I can beat that, then I'm going to be a happy camper. You know, I'm going to strive for you know three hours and twenty minutes. But if I get three hours and thirty minutes, it'll be awesome. If I get three hours and forty five minutes, that's okay. If I beat three fifty even by a few seconds, yeah, I wish I could have done better, but I'll be happy, right? So I, I compare myself to myself, and during the race. I might very well see that there's this other person who's running pretty much the same pace as me because I've seen him for the past several miles, right? And I'm going to go like, I'm going to try to catch up to that guy. Or if somebody starts passing me, I'm doing like, whoa, now, now you can't pass me. I've been working hard on this for 16 miles. You're not going to pass me now. So I, I might, you know, use a little bit of that competition to to try to do better. Or to, um, what's the word? To inspire me to keep going. Right. So those that's OK. You know, you're, you're you're playing off that. But it's not like, oh, I'll beat that guy at any cost and I'm good and he's bad. You know, it's nothing like that. It's just that sort of healthy competition to play off that sort of thing, recognizing that ultimately you're playing against yourself. Right. Ultimately, you're you're saying to try to make yourself better. I think that's a good thing. I think that's a really healthy thing. And this um, self-love and the humbleness of that and the acceptance of who you are as a work in progress is really what it's all about. You are worth making and charging good money for what you do. You're a good coach. Believe that and charge the money that you deserve to get. You do deserve to get it. And that's my epistle for today. Thank you very much for listening. Hope to see you again. And by the way, always know that you can find out all these podcasts over at uh, EssentialCoachingSkills.com and a whole lot more. Thanks a lot for listening. Well, that does it for another episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly enjoyed having you here. Hey, if you want more information about Sleight of Mouth, you can find it at EssentialCoachingSkills.com, or you might even check out SleightofMouth.org. That's a nice website, too. Thanks. Stay safe. Stay curious. <laughs>